Hello and welcome to the Isakos podcast. Today we have a replay of the incredible ESCA webinar, which Isakos collaborated on, titled Acute Meniscal Lesions and Repair. If you're an Isakos member, you already have access to the video version of this webinar for free on Isakos Global Link. If you're not a member and still want to check out the video version, you can go to isakos.com slash global link slash subscribe to find out more info. And now, let's get to the webinar. Please enjoy Acute Meniscal Lesions and Repair. All members of the Save the Meniscus Secret Society. And for those of you who are uh, joining us for the first time, what is ESCA? Well, ESCA is all about education, knowledge, arthroscopy, science, and much more. To keep up to date with ESCA, become part of the ESCA community, or follow us on the uh, social media. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce my co-chair, uh, Peter Myers from Brisbane, where it is 3 a.m. So Peter has made a huge effort to be with us uh, today. Peter? Thank you, Jacques. It's a pleasure to be with you and representing Isakos from Brisbane. Um, for those of you who don't know much about Isakos, it is more of an umbrella organization and members of the regional uh, societies are entitled to join Isakos. These involve the European, North American, South American and the Asia Pacific societies. So if you'd like more of an international flavor to your education, then you should consider joining Isakos. Thank you, Jacques. Thank you, Peter. We have a very nice program uh, that we will uh, develop for you tonight. We have, hopefully we will have enough time for a big Q&A uh, session and even uh, maybe some case presentation. Uh, tonight with us, we have recognized an outstanding international faculty, uh, starting with Roman Zell, a past president of ESCA, who will talk about ACL-associated ramp lesion and our actual first vice president, Roland Becker, who will speak about ACL injury and posterior lateral root tear. Peter? Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Kira Stevenson from Belfast in Northern Ireland. Kira did a fellowship uh, with me here in Brisbane some years ago, and she's taken that teaching to new heights. She'll be presenting management techniques on the outcomes and for the more common tears, such as the bucket handle and radial tear. Also, my good friend Chris Harner from Pittsburgh will discuss the all-important aspect of rehabilitation and return to sport following meniscus repair. It's not good if you do a fantastic repair only to have the patient damage it by inappropriate rehabilitation. Thank you, Peter. Today's webinar recording will shortly be available on the SKR Academy. If you cannot access the Academy yet, uh, just register for free uh, as an SKR Academy user on esca.org. I would like also to thank uh, the ESCA Continuous Professional Education Partners, Smith and & Nephew and the Pucentis. Well, please use the Q&A icon to submit your question to the speakers. Use the chat icon only for general comments. And there will be a summary and a take-home message at, at the end. So stay with us until the last minute. Without further ado, I will hand over to Chiara for the first presentation. 
Thank you, Jacques. Okay. So uh, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm going to present on management technique and outcomes of bucket handle and radial meniscal tears. My disclosures, I'm an educational consultant for Smith and & Nephew. And as Pete alluded to, I'm dual fellowship trained in knee surgery by Pete Myers and Tim Spaulding. So I am a member of the secret society that Jack mentioned called Save the Meniscus. Why do we repair the meniscus? Because the effects of meniscectomy are devastating to the joint and well-documented in the literature. Brian Cole's team demonstrated increased compartment pressures and point contact loading following subtotal meniscectomy. The longitudinal studies show increased relative risk of osteoarthritis compared to the general population. And we know that meniscal repair can lessen that effect. So it's crucial when there is a, an acute traumatic tear that we can try to repair, that we do so. So when you're starting out doing meniscal repair, I would suggest pick your winners. And that would be the acute traumatic injury to the knee with a peripheral vertical tear in a stable, well-aligned knee that has good cartilage. For that is the area that has the blood supply. We know the outer third of the meniscus gets the feeding vessels in from the geniculate arteries. So that has the best potential for healing. But quite often, that's not what we see. And this is what we get when we refer to the clinic. So the patient comes in with a locked knee, unable to achieve terminal extension and fully straighten their leg. And that is where the posterior body has flipped into the anterior compartment. But when reduced, that becomes a peripheral tear in the red-red zone, which is still repairable. So this is arthroscopic findings of a bucket handle. You can see the posterior body of the meniscus flipped underneath the femoral condyle. And I will use the shoulder of the probe to reduce the meniscus and reduce it close to the tibial spine as you bring the leg into extension. And I'm using the shoulder of the probe and not the tip of the probe as I don't want to cause further injury to the meniscus. And this, when reduced, is stable and it is a peripheral longitudinal tear in the red-red zone, which has a good blood supply. And this paper by Leprad's team demonstrated that these have excellent potential for healing. So how are we going to repair the bucket handle tear? So I like to set out my surgical plan in theatre and write the technical steps on the whiteboard, particularly if I'm doing complex surgery like multi-leg reconstructions or transplant. But if you're doing an inside-out repair with an assistant or a scrub nurse that has never done them, this is a, an excellent guide or memoir for them intraoperatively. I want to set up the position supine using a side support. If you want to get into the medial side, have the side support lower in the legs so that you can crank valgus to get into the medial compartment. I perform a diagnostic arthroscopy to assess that the meniscus is repairable and there isn't a concomitant tear. And here you can see in the video on the right, a displacing bucket handle tear of the lateral meniscus in a knee with pristine cartilage. It reduces nicely. I check that the posterior root is intact to the tibia, and then I decide I'm going to perform an inside out repair. At this stage, I recommend making your incision. Um, at this stage, you won't regret making the incision, and I'll show you why later on in the talk. So um, your posterolateral incision, you want to find fibular head, girdish tubercle, and make a three centimeter incision, one centimeter above and two centimeters below the joint line. Your window is in front of lateral gastroc and behind LCL, and that's where you tie your sutures over capsule. I then get the diamond rasp and choose my cannula and pop the scope back into the knee. 
I perform uh, preparation of the meniscal uh, tear using a diamond rasp, as this has been shown in the literature to improve healing rates. Whilst you're doing your incision, that allows your scrub nurse time to set out the long needles. And this was a technique I learned in Coventry with Tim Spalding's team, because uh, when you're doing a meniscal transplant, you want to have the inside out cannula and the needles ready, um, ready to go and for deployment. A technique I learned in fellowship in Brisbane was to pre-bend the cannula and pre-bend the needles. If you put a straight needle into the cannula, it will come out straight. And when you're doing an inside out repair of the lateral meniscus, you don't want to put a straight needle out the back of the knee. And you can see in the bottom right hand corner, the axial MRI scan demonstrating why the artery is in close proximity. So if you bend the cannula, and here I am just using a simple single lumen inside out cannula that you can bend to varying degrees and then bend the long needles. This is just using simple 2-0 Tycron non-absorbable suture using a heavy artery clip or a cocker. And you put the pre-bent needle into the pre-bent cannula. It will come out uh, curved and deflect away from the neurovascular bundle. So technical tips for your portal, trying to get into the bucket handle on the medial side, keep it low. For the portal, if you're trying to work in the lateral side, you want it slightly higher to clear the tibial spine. If you're doing a lateral bucket handle repair, I always uh, release ligamentum and partially excise the fat pad so that you don't get your instrumentation caught going in and out of the anteromedial portal. And I advocate using a suture manipulator to run your sutures and avoid any soft tissue bridges. This video demonstrates um, where we can pie crust the MCL to allow the femoral condyle to lift and open the medial compartment and avoid chondral damage. Now, this is a patient that I'm preparing for a meniscal transplant, but you can still see the technique. So you perforate using a green needle, the MCL and the posterior oblique fibers, and that allows the compartment to open up and um, easier access. You want to have sutures above and below the meniscus, and they should be in a vertical mattress fashion as they have a higher pullout strength. The video on the left is me demonstrating inside out technique. So I'm holding the, the scope and I'm holding the cannula and is, it is my assistant who is deploying the needles. And there is a separate assistant that is retrieving the needles as they come out through skin. And I've stitched above and below the meniscus and the video on the right shows the finished result. So you can see the meniscus is sitting nicely reduced. There's sutures above, right round as far as uh, the posterior root. And then there are sutures underneath on the inferior surface of the meniscus as well in a vertical mattress fashion to improve stability for the repair. This is why you will be grateful for making your incision at the start of the procedure. Um, so I have seen um, situations where you try to make an incision at this stage and you cut the sutures. Um, whereas if you've made your incision beforehand, you just take an arthroscopy probe and you fish out the sutures and tie them over a capsule. I splint them in extension for two weeks and I won't go too much into detail as I know Dr. Harner will go on to rehab in his talk. And this is a stable um, repair to axial load. So I allow them to start weight bearing from two weeks post-op. No deep flexion for three months. So that's how I repair a bucket handle tear using inside out technique. Moving on, this is a lateral meniscus and we're gonna run through a case presentation. This is a 15 year old male, he's 90 kilograms plays competitive rugby and competitive hockey for the under 16s national team. He was referred to me by a colleague because he plays hockey with his son. 
and he attends the consultation with both parents who do believe he will play at adult national level. And this is a this is a difficult conversation because this is a devastating injury. We know from the work that Andrew Amos has done in Imperial College London, the significance of the lateral meniscus in the lateral compartment, and that a full thickness radial tear um, has dramatic biomechanical consequences for the joint. So at this stage, I would like to poll the audience um, and ask the audience how you would manage this patient. So a full thickness radial tear in a 15 year old playing competitive sport. And hopefully everybody agrees. Okay, good. So 46% said arthroscopic repair, all techniques available in biological augmentation. Um, the majority of the audience agree in meniscal repair. So I'm preaching to the converted, which is excellent. So I'm going to repair this with everything that I've got. Um, I'll position the patient supine and I want the side support to be loose. And sometimes intraoperatively, I just release the side prop completely to allow the figure the, the knee to sit comfortably in figure four. And sometimes lifting the foot has the same biomechanical advantage of pressing down in the thigh just to open up that lateral compartment. I'm gonna use a slightly higher anteromedial portal. I'm gonna release the ligamentum and excise the fat pad and make sure that I have no soft tissue bridges. I'll choose my cannula for the inside out technique and I will have all techniques available. If it's in the anterior third, you may need to do some outside in suturing. I'll perform a diagnostic arthroscopy and assess whether this tear is repairable. So for me, a tear in the inner third of the meniscus doesn't have a blood supply and has no potential for healing. But if the tear goes through all three zones and is a full thickness radial tear, it has penetrated the red red zone and the red white zone, and that does have potential for healing. I will prepare the bed using the diamond rasp as we mentioned earlier. And I'm going to augment this using fibrin clot. And this was a technique that I learned in Brisbane with Pete. The anaesthetist will draw 40 mils of blood, put it into a glass beaker, let it sit for 12 minutes, do not touch, and then start to stir slowly and you will form a lump of fibrin clot. Pat it dry with uh, gauze and I stitch both ends using 2-O-Vicryl and I then use a five millimeter syringe and I take out the inner plunger and I cut the tip off the five mil syringe and I use that as a lumen in the anteromedial portal for the safe passage of the clot. I then uh, perform my inside out technique and this can be a horizontal mattress, but the evidence is increasingly showing that a hashtag or tie grip technique has better pullout strength. And that's simply by adding in vertical sutures to stop the horizontal mattress cheese wearing through the meniscus. So once I've got my sutures in position, I will then suture shuttle the fibrin clot into the tear. So I pass a spinal needle from outside in, into the tear. I deploy a PDS through the, the spinal needle. I then bring that PDS using a suture manipulator out through the anteromedial portal. And I put the two ends of the 2 ovicle that I've stitched the clot to into the PDS and suture shuttle that into the clot, into the tear. So you end up with what I like to call a clot sandwich before you tighten your sutures. And I often get asked, well, how do you know the clot stays in place? Because it's stitched into place with a 2 ovicle. 
So this is the most important part of the whole procedure. This has to be slow. Um, and I know that uh, Chris will go on to talk about this in his talk, but you, the parents will want to push you. There will always be a training camp or the next training session, but you cannot rush biology. And so this is uh, the case presentation. This is our patient um, back training drills and skills for competitive hockey. Ideally, what I would like to do in this patient is perform a second look arthroscopy to make sure that it's healed, but he's asymptomatic, no effusion, no mechanical symptoms, and I can't justify it. So let's look at the literature for the outcomes. So this was a biomechanical study looking at radial tears um, performed by Zhang and published in the Journal of the Knee in 2015. And you can see quite nicely that a radial tear more than doubles the peak pressure in the compartment and that a meniscectomy further exacerbates this. And this is most noticeable at 30 degrees of flexion and that a meniscal repair can lessen that effect. It doesn't make it normal, but it certainly improves it. This was a case series of 12 patients with full thickness radial tears repaired using the same technique that I've described with fibrin clot. And they did perform second look arthroscopy and MRI. They noticed statistically significant improvement in their clinical outcome scores. 11 out of 12 healed on MRI and six out of seven healed on second look arthroscopy. So these tears do have potential for healing. If we look at the overall outcomes for meniscal repair in the literature, and we exclude the early repairs using um, uh, techniques and um, suture devices that we are now aware have higher failure rates. If we exclude that from the literature, um, meniscal repair has a failure rate of in and around 20%. Now, this paper um, was different in that it purely looked at elite level athletes that were returning to high level twist and pivoting sports. But you can also see that we can consent these patients that they will have good to excellent clinical outcomes. Is there uh, one technique that's better than the other? This was a systematic review by Grant published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine, and they looked at 19 studies and found that there was no difference in inside out versus all inside for isolated peripheral longitudinal meniscal tears. This was the paper that we alluded to with a slightly higher failure rate, and that was because uh, this was 42 elite level athletes, 45 meniscal repairs, 36 had concomitant ACL reconstructions, over 80% got back to sport at the same level, which I think is quite remarkable. Um, but there was 11 failures and 10 were in the medial side. So they concluded that medial meniscal repairs certainly have a higher failure rate in high level elite athletes, and they should be adequately counseled appropriately pre-op. So do radial tears do worse than bucket handle? That would be my hypothesis. Um, this was a comparative study from the States that matched for age, gender, meniscus laterality and BMI, and they found no significant difference in clinical outcomes or survival rates for full thickness radial tears or um, versus bucket handles. But we do know that if you do a meniscal repair with a concomitant ACL reconstruction, they will do better. And this is a matched cohort study looking at over 1200 patients. And they found that you've doubled the failure rate in isolation than what you would do compared with an ACL reconstruction. And this is um, probably due to drilling of the bone tunnels, enhancing the biological environment for meniscal repair, or simply due to the fact that these are younger patients having their ACL reconstructed and better quality tissue. Ideally, we would like to second look arthroscopy all of these patients, but ethically and clinical and cost effectiveness, um, it isn't always possible. 
But this study looked at 67 bucket handle repairs done with concomitant ACL reconstructions. And they second look, arthroscoped them and found that 90% had healed at two years. Fortunately, with advances in MRI, particularly 3D MRI, there's um, studies coming into the literature now looking at signal to noise ratio measurements, improving the diagnostic accuracy and sensitivity and evaluating meniscal repairs. So this may negate the need to do second look arthroscopy. So my conclusion is, if there is an acute traumatic bucket handle tear or an acute traumatic radial tear, please try and repair them. The outcomes are variable in the literature, but I think we can expect good to excellent clinical results in 80% of patients, and I quote a failure rate of 20%. We know the devastating uh, impact of meniscectomy and a full thickness radial tear in the lateral compartment is a devastating injury, augment it with fibrin clot and go slow in the rehab. I would like to draw our attention to this fantastic educational resource published by ESC earlier this year on surgery of the meniscus. Thank you for your attention. I would now like to introduce a subsequent speaker who needs no introduction, former past president of the ESCA Society, uh, Ramian Seal, is going to give us a talk on ramp lesions associated with ACL injury. So, um, good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the introduction, Jack and uh, Chiara. So um, I speak about uh, these uh, new uh, lesions, which we call the ramp lesions. Actually, they are not so new. They have been uh, described first in 1984 by a group from Sweden. Here are my disclosures. And uh, here you see actually an, uh, uh, a nice um, uh, image of the meniscus, where you see the meniscus ramp on the posterior part of the uh, meniscotibial attachment at the posterior horn. And uh, actually, these um, ramp lesions have been introduced for the first time in a classification of an international society, the ESCA, by Sebastian Kopf in our uh, meniscus, traumatic meniscus uh, consensus that we published uh, just uh, recently. And uh, if you look at them from uh, from behind, that's uh, what you see here, the attachment of the meniscus on the meniscus, um, on the, the, the posterior tibial plateau. And if you go for a sagittal uh, section, that's what it looks like, a nice meniscotibial attachment, also recently nicely published by, in a study by uh, De Filippo, by Nick De Filippo from Rob Laprade's group, where you see the meniscotibial ligament and the synovial membrane overlying this. And uh, actually the lesions are, are located in the zone zero, so the meniscus synovial zone of uh, the Warren classification. And uh, this is important to state because there has been some confusion in some papers in the literature. Um, how to diagnose these lesions? Actually, you can do it uh, through an intercondylar view. Uh, with a 30 degree scope and that's what you see then here on the right. The problem is that you don't see the entire ramp if you go uh, from, uh, from there. And uh, what you can see in some uh, lesions um, is actually these uh, two uh, pictures here on the left, you see this empty wall sign. This is uh, pretty typical and the cleavage between the posterior horn and uh, the meniscotibial attachment. On the right, you see a nice crater. So these are really big lesions and these are the ones uh, you need to stabilize. Uh, when you get in, and if you're not sure, you can uh, come in uh, with, a, with a needle um, when, where you can palpate this area. And um, even if you don't see the lesions, you, you sometimes can feel 
that uh, you have a direct contact with this needle on the tibial plateau, especially if it's around the corner here with a 30 degree scope. So if you're in doubt, uh, do a posterior medial viewing portal and uh, go for a direct posterior visualization. For this, you might use a Wissinger rod, which uh, can be very useful in these uh, these cases. Now, if you go for high posterior medial view, that's what you get. And on the right side, this is actually not the shoulder. This is the uh, posterior part of the um, uh, of the ramp and of the medial um, uh, of the medial uh, tibial plateau. Actually, really looks like a uh, shoulder. And uh, that's what you get if you have an injury. Um, these uh, are the again you see the empty wall and the ramp tissue which uh, which hangs down from this like a curtain, uh, which is detached from its attachment um, uh, on the on the window actually. And here again, an, an entire view of um, the, the posterior ramp lesion. And uh, you generally have a trend to underestimate the size. So if you debride these lesions, you see that they, they, they will get uh, very big. And that's why they have a kind of, uh, they probably have an, an important impact and should be, uh, should be repaired. Now, how did they occur? That's something we still don't know actually to 100%. But there are uh, signs which go into the direction that uh, it could be um, liaised with an frequent with a medial subluxation, actually, like you have in the shoulder, like in the glenohumeral dislocation, where you have the, the femoral condyle which goes over uh, basically the posterior corner of the tibial plateau. And there are some studies who uh, deducted uh, the displacement with up to 25 millimeters displacement at the moment uh, of the of the injury. And that's something you can see nicely on these videos, which have recently been published uh, in Sports Health. You see here the subluxation, it's really like a shoulder dislocation and here the reposition. And I'll show you another case here, very nice videos coming from Bologna around Stefano Zafanini's group again, dislocation and here the reposition and maybe the last one, also very nice, oh, the reposition. And these are the, the injury types where these ramp lesions may, may occur. It's not a typical valgus collapse, but it's really and uh, dislocation. And uh, how frequent are these lesions in, uh, in comparison to other ACL-associated meniscus lesions? Actually, that's something we uh, just published in, in KSSDA. And you see that they, uh, these ramp lesions are more frequent than the lesions of the medial meniscus body, actually. So the lesions which are located in the zones one to three of the, of the Warren classification. So they, they are uh, regularly underestimated. Other studies show the prevalence between roughly between 15 and 25 to 30%, depending on the types of patients uh, you see. What we did also identify is that there is an association between the ramp lesions and uh, patients who suffered from a high energy trauma and patients who uh, present with a high degree pivot shift. So these are more like complex ACL injuries. It's not the small ACL, um, the isolated ACL injuries you treat. These are other or different injury mechanisms. So the question, should they be repaired? Well, probably, especially if you look at this video from behind, uh, again, a posterior view where we go bring the knee into extension. And what happens is that you have a big gap in here, the closer you get to extension. And so you can imagine that in this case, if you fix them from anteriorly, they may not heal, and uh, they probably certainly do not heal with, uh, without a, a proper uh, direct uh, repair. 
So what do we want as a repair? Well, uh, you see here, we want to uh, actually an anatomic repair, which is an advanced um, surgical technique, an advanced arthroscopic technique. Uh, you need to get familiar here with uh, shoulder instruments. You need to uh, know that you need 20 minutes um, of extra OR time to, to do this. You need to be familiar with a portal, a post-remedial portal placement, then identify a tissue, debride uh, the tissue, reposition it, and do a proper repair. And here, again, you need to know about shoulder instruments and about arthroscopic knot tying. And then you have to decide if you go for one or a two portal strategy. Uh, in uh, the first case, A would be the working portal. And in the, in the second case, uh, you have one, A would be the viewing portal and B, the working portal. That's my preferred technique right now if I have these large ramp injuries. And uh, now then you have to identify, properly identify the tissue and reposition the ramp tissue. That's very important. You see here in a 14 year old uh, football uh, player, uh, you see that the, the tissue needs to be really repositioned to where it was torn off. Uh, it's a little bit like in a banquet repair in the shoulder. That's what you need to identify. In acute cases, that's easy. In others, it's more difficult. Then uh, if you go for uh, basically for repair, that's uh, how you can, can do it. Uh, from the front, you see an apparent uh, integrity of the meniscus. And then um, actually you need to debride and um, with a usual shaver from, from coming from post-remedially. Then you need to go uh, through the tissue with these shoulder instruments. That's a proper technique. You need to train that. It's not very easy. And then it's all about uh, suture passing. Uh, as you see uh, here, uh, this is an, um, a single use instrument, but there are others avail available. You need to steal them from your shoulder colleagues and then go ahead for the, uh, for the repair. And then it's all about knot tying. That's something I won't uh, show you right now. So um, actually, what about the results? Here you see a whole bunch of, of those repairs we did over the last uh, years. Actually, uh, we know that it's a uh, safe procedure, that there are hardly any complications. Sometimes you may have problems with uh, the saphenous um, vein. Uh, they have a good healing potential that has already been shown in the 1980s uh, when uh, open uh, techniques were still used. And there is also a nice study coming from Lyon, from uh, Mathieu Tonat, who showed this as well, that they heal very well. Now, what we don't know yet is if we improve our ACL reconstruction outcome. That's really the goal we have to find in the next years. Uh, so in, uh, in summary, um, these are complex injuries, complex knee injuries. It's not isolated cases. They are related with uh, high energy uh, trauma mechanisms as often associated with high degree of pivot shift. It can, they can be caused, that's our hypothesis right now, by a medial subluxation. Uh, the prevalence is around 20%. Uh, we need to repair them if they are unstable. There are some smaller ones where we can debate if they need to be repaired. But in these big ones I showed you, I think it's sure that we need to, we should do it in order to have an anatomic um, ACL uh, reconstruction and repair of all the torn tissues. These techniques are technically demanding. You need to train them. And um, Finally, uh, well, about the outcome, that's what I told you. We need to show that our ACL reconstructions get better through this repair in the future. Now I have an, a small uh, poll for you. Uh, actually, no, it's, it's gone. Actually, you wrote, Joseph, can you bring the, the poll question? Yeah, so first one, first one would be, uh, which arthroscopic portal can be used to diagnose a ramp lesion? Anteromedial, anterolateral, postromedial, postrolateral. What is your guess? 
could get the answers. Yeah, very good. So everybody knew the ramp lesions already. So second question, Joseph. Yeah, so what is uh, the prevalence of these lesions? Less than 5%, less than 10%, between 10 and 30 or more than 30. Again, you listen to me, that's so good. Uh, okay, so thanks for your attention and next speaker will be uh, Roland uh, Becker. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure. And uh, my talk will cover the topic of uh, meniscal, uh, lateral meniscal root tears and this is probably something which we have neglected for many, many years because we didn't pay enough attention. Probably didn't look really at to the posterior root of the lateral meniscus. And if you're not aware about something, of course, then you will miss it. I have nothing to declare related to this uh, presentation. If you see the anatomy, actually you see there's a quite wide insertion side of the posterior um, horn of the lateral meniscus. And it goes far to the medial side, actually. So it's not just uh, close to the articular surface. And the problem is sometimes is that it's difficult to see, especially, you know, when you have still the- Roland, you should share your screen. I have done. I shared the screen. Okay. Can you see it? Yes, we do, perfect. Okay, so I have to go back. Sorry about this, yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, coming back to the meniscus anatomy, you see basically that the posterior horn of the meniscus has a quite wide insertion side, as you can see here, and it runs really uh, far medially. And um, uh, the lateral horn is probably missed, or the insertion is missed because when you have, it's covered actually uh, due to the uh, ACL, which is running in front of the posterior horn of the meniscus, and therefore it's quite difficult sometimes to identify. If you look into the biomechanics, the meniscus we know and we heard already, it's very important for shock absorption, for pressure distribution. And you see, I mean, there's an increase of almost 100%, you know, if you have a, um, a meniscus tear. And of course, then the, the femoral tibial pressure will significantly increase, even when you have some kind of secondary stabilizer like the ligament beverage pair. Also important is lubrication. We know that has an impact on proper reception. And we know it's not only the ACL, it's also if you have a torn meniscus, uh, then you have actually some impact on neuromuscular function. So that means it may impact on your maximum voluntary contraction or um, of the voluntary activation of your quadriceps muscle. And this is probably one of the other reasons that people develop osteoarthritis over the years. If you see the pressure distribution, and you can imagine, you know, if the root is gone, then you don't have really a proper fixation anymore, and then you get this kind of increase. And have, you can have a look here, actually, how much the lateral meniscus covers of the lateral tibial plateau, and it's a lot. So basically, if the meniscus is torn, then, of course, the, the contact between the femur and the tibia is getting much smaller because of the convexity of the femur and the tibia. And then you get an increase in pressure and the higher risk of developing osteoarthritis. That's also a kind of secondary stabilizer. We know that the medial meniscus uh, stabilizes, you know, in knees which have a torn ACL. 
And uh, Christy Elm, for instance, has done some biomechanical studies in Pittsburgh about this. But it's the same on the lateral side, maybe not as significant as we know from the medial side. And as you can see on this slide, actually, this is a study by, by Frank uh, published three years ago. And you see, I mean, there's not much uh, of secondary stabilizing function of the lateral meniscus in close to extension. But when you start and you get more into flexion, actually, then it's where the, the lateral meniscus takes over this kind of function. And it's getting quite significantly uh, a task for stabilizing the knee besides the ligaments, of course. So it is very important, especially during flexion. So epidemiology, if you see combined injuries of ACL and meniscus, and I think in the past we neglected quite often these kind of uh, injuries and because we really do, didn't look closely enough on the medial and lateral side. You see it's probably more frequently on the lateral side and not as originally described by Dunthe, which mentions the medial meniscus. Of course, the medial meniscus is not as mobile as the lateral one, but due to the valgus stress, which we have seen on the videos by Roman, I mean, you know, you have a higher increased pressure and you have a higher risk actually of really damaging and tearing your lateral meniscus. But still there's a high percentage actually where you, you have a meniscus tear on the medial and lateral side. Interesting, there is no difference in type of tear between contact and non-contact ACL injuries. The lateral meniscus root is more friendly, more frequently in pivot, pivoting sports uh, uh, type, and the lateral meniscus root is more frequently in contact sport as well. I think that is something important. So take the history, and if you get these kind of information, just get kind of red flag, you know, and look very closely to the, especially to the posterior horn of the lateral meniscus. What happens basically, you know, when when the lateral meniscus gets under pressure, you get rotation due to, due to the external rotation and you have the valgus stress, you can imagine a lot of tensions coming on, the, especially on the posterior horn of the lateral meniscus. And then there's a high risk actually that you rupture the, the, the insertion site. And it is difficult to see, especially as I said before, when you have still the, the, the rest of your ACL, of your torn ACL in front, and then you can't really identify it. You really have to look very closely. So, resect the, the remnants of the, menisque, of the ACL and have a close look to the posterior because then it's quite good visualized. And sometimes it's, it's like in a trough and you can't really see it directly. So, but it's very important to look very close. If you compare the posterior medial root and posterior lateral root, uh, this is probably well known. On the posterior medial, it's more in degenerative knees. It's more females, you know, and you see more frequently the meniscus extrusion. And there's, of course, no really significant knee trauma in when you take the history. But on the lateral side, you know, there's an incidence, it's about six to seven percent, which is, I find is quite high actually. So the risk factors are contact sports, concomitant medial meniscus tear. Males are more frequently affected than females, and often it's conjunction with ACL tears. So I think that is very, very important to keep in mind. If you look to the MRI, we know these kind of cleft sign truncated sign or goose sign, but still, I mean, you know, these papers, they refer more to radial tears, but in reality, you know, it's much more difficult to identify these kind of signs uh, when you look to the posterior root tears of the lateral meniscus. I think bone bruising, if you find bone bruising on the medial and lateral side, then you have to be uh, aware there might be a risk or there might be actually a damage of the lateral posterior root as well. So it keeps this in mind. And I think it's very difficult to identify really these typical signs. As you can see on the left side, you see the rest of the lateral meniscus. You see still a little bit here, and then it's disappeared. So, you know, this is a patient who had a torn uh, ACL and had a, a posterior 
uh, root here of his lateral meniscus. Sometimes look and you can see the ligament of Risberg, which can be a secondary stabilizer for the posterior horn. But still, if the knee, if the knee is coming under loading, I think then it is uh, still some kind of extrusion and uh, it compromises basically the function of the lateral meniscus. Uh, however, I think in these cases, we still should repair uh, the root and not just leave it uh, like it is. Coming to the technical aspects, you know, there, there are different ways. And now there are some quite really sophisticated instruments developed, uh, which you can use in all inside technique, but you can use a normal ACL guide. You know, you have to identify the root, especially when you have a torn ACL, it will help a lot because you take the, the rest of the ACL away, then you have a nice exposure and you can identify the root. Take your time. I think that's very crucial. I come back in a second why. And then again, you can use some shoulder instruments in the left knee, you should use a, a right angle uh, shoulder uh, suture parser, and then actually you can perforate the, the, uh, the, the root of the lateral meniscus, either come from below or above. Sometimes you have to come from above because then you have to put the meniscus a bit under tension, which is a little bit easier than coming from below as shown here. Then you just pass uh, uh, some sutures on the on the through the meniscus. There are biomechanical studies we have shown. There are certain suture types, and if you use a suture tape, it's even better because stronger stability. I still use sutures, and you can use a kind of chinch, you know, and just get the sutures through the loop. And I always to use two sutures and uh, just have a parser, and then you can pull it in. And as you can see in, in an arthroscopic view, it really pulls the root into the into the um, into the canal and what I normally use, either you use the special kits, which I'm coming back in a second, or use just a 4.5 millimeter uh, cannulated drill, which you use for ACL reconstruction quite often as well. So you have it on your tray and you can use it for meniscus repair as well. So this is just to summarize how it looks during, during the procedure. You see, I, I normally I go from above if I use a, a suture parser from the shoulder suture parser, and then you can shuttle your sutures you can keep the root a little bit out of the way and you do your drilling, identify the spot, you know, and then you get your shuttle sutures through this, uh, uh, through the canal, removes, uh, of course, the drill and everything, and then you can pull in the sutures, and then finally you do your ACL reconstruction. Now there are kits available uh, specifically made uh, for posterior root repairs, and you see there is a certain angulation. And then you see the suture parser actually, which allows, you know, in angulation, which allows really to get right to the posterior. They're very small, so you get really uh, to the lateral part. It's more difficult on the medial part because opening on the medial side is more difficult. So you have to do a, a, a certain release of the MCL by puncturing the MCL to open up the space. Otherwise it's impossible. But on the lateral side, you have always opening of a couple of millimeters. So you can have access and then you can shuttle your sutures you got in there, you come from the notch and then actually go through. And this is with this instrument actually quite quite easy to do. You can use this loop sutures and do a cinch repair. That uh, depends on what you're liking, what you prefer. Just uh, if uh, at the end, the biomechanical consideration. Uh, some biomechanical studies actually have shown if you slightly medialize or lateralize your insertion site, this will have a significant impact on your tension of the meniscus. So if you slightly medialize it, you go further to the eminence, you might increase the tension of your meniscus, or if you go further lateral, then you might actually decrease the tension on the meniscus. And of course, both. I mean, if it's higher, you risk that as a re-rapture. If it's getting too low, basically the meniscus loses its function, which you don't want. So try, take your time, try really to identify the insertion site 
of the of the of the posterior horn of the meniscus, and then you really do your drilling to get really an appropriate function after your surgery and to be successful. So there are not so many clinical studies out yet, but still, I mean, one of Sheldon, 10 years follow up, he didn't find any different in clinical outcome regarding the prompts, but you know, there was less incidence in having uh, osteoarthritis when you, you repair the posterior in comparison to left alone and leave it. So after long-term, and I think when we do meniscus surgery, we always have to think about the long-term perspective and not what's happened in one or two years. There's a good healing potential, I think, because of the drilling and there's some bleeding, but of course you have to pay a lot of attention and you have to be very, very restricted in your post-op rehabilitation. So let's come to the take home. Combined ACL and lateral meniscus root tears in up to 10% of patients. That should be keep, kept, keep, kept in mind. Bone bruises and MI, typically on the medial and lateral side, so the red flag, and really look very closely to the posterior horn. Lateral meniscus routers repair. Osseous fixation is required in conjunction with the AC reconstruction and correct insertion site. I think that's very crucial that you have a proper function of your lateral meniscus. Thank you very much. So the next talk will be given by Professor Christopher Harner. I think you all know him very well. He works for many, many years in, at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, then he moved for, uh, to Houston, and now he's back to Pittsburgh. He is now the chair of the Journal of ESACOS, the Board of Trustees. Um, Christopher Harner was a, a member from the American Orthopedic Society of Sports Medicine for over 10 years. Uh, he was organizing a lot of congresses, always very academic, and it was very impressive, actually, when I went the first time to Pittsburgh in 2002, and I can follow with him when he did the surgery, very meticulous, very precise, and always very, very scientific. Chris. Thank you, Roland. Um, Joseph, am I? Is my, uh, I push shared screen and now I, I'm not sure what's going on. There we go. I guess, I guess, are you guys seeing my screen? Okay. Everybody see it? Yes, we do, Chris. Okay. Thank you, Jack. And uh, good evening to everyone. Uh, and uh, greetings from the United States. Uh, I want to th thank uh, Jack and Peter for co-moderating this and uh, just emphasize how important it is for the collaborations of these two organizations to come together on this, this type of educational effort. I really commend that. So uh, I was asked to talk about rehabilitation. So just to give you a sort of a heads up, I'll give it from a surgeon's standpoint. These are my disclosures, which Roland mentioned a few. I'll start with this picture. Uh, this is a 19-year-old uh, a active Female athlete is two years after a failed lateral meniscus repair. There are many causes of failure, but one of the most common ones is that they're, I think, return to, to sports or return to activities too soon. And that's what I'm gonna talk about. So I'll start with this uh, audience poll question. So everybody take a look. It's a 20 year old recreational football player, a female undergoes successful surgery of a displaced bucket handle tear shown there in the picture, red and white zone, four vertical mattress sutures. The question, 
following what you believe is adequate rehabilitation, when would you release for return to play? A, four to six weeks. Joseph, can you put up the questionnaire? I can't see it. I'm assuming it's up there. I see it there. A, four to six weeks. B, six to 12 weeks. C, three to six months. And D, greater than six months. We'll put up the, uh, the results and the data here, and then we'll actually discuss that, and we'll see where everybody is, and sort of split between three to six months and greater than six months. Okay, let's go on to... I'm uh, not advancing. Could you advance my slide? I don't know if you have control of it. Jack, is it, uh, I don't know why I'm not advancing. There we go. This is my, uh, my eight minute talk that I'm gonna give. I'll start with key take home points, a general philosophy, a couple of slides on municipal repair for me, basically the younger they are, the more aggressive I am. And then how do we rehab? And I've broken it down into isolated meniscal repairs and meniscal repairs with ACL reconstruction. But the important message that I wanna leave everyone is every tear and every patient is different but post-op rehab is similar, protective repair until full healing and rehab is completed. And when do we let this athlete start to do this after a meniscal repair? So I'll start with my key take-home points. Understand the timing of the biology, biology of healing. Remember, most of these are poorly vascularized and some are avascularized that you're going to repair. Know the fixation strength of your repair, the type of suture and the suture technique you use, and the access to the repair sites. Sometimes you can't get to all those sites and you have to protect them actually a little longer. Compliance, you've heard this from a number of the different faculty. Uh, doc, it feels great there are three weeks and between the patient and the athletic trainer, uh, they're out running around, but you don't want that. Uh, beware of non-compliant patients. These are usually young active patients with overburdening parents, so beware of those. I think this bill is really important. Continue to reinforce and be very clear on post-op rehab and return to play before, during, and after surgery. You cannot re reinforce that message enough. And finally, the bottom line, six weeks to heal, six weeks to return to baseline, and three to six months for full recovery. Especially uh, be careful with the isolated repairs where the vascularity isn't as good. But what about ACL reconstruction with meniscal repair? In my hands, now these are usually a little more in the vascular zone, such as Roman's uh, ramp lesions. ACL surgery with meniscectomy has a poor outcome. So remember, if you're thinking about taking that meniscus out, you don't think it's gonna heal. Those patients, regardless of how good your ACL reconstruction, have poor outcomes. Always try to repair. Finally, post-op rehab for meniscus repair incorporate with, with ACL rehab is usually relatively easy because you're protecting both in that first three to six months. My general philosophy on uh, indications for repair, all meniscal tears are potentially repairable. The younger the patient, the more aggressive I am. And much of this velocity is driven by my 20 plus year experience with meniscus transplantation. And that's another, that's another story for another meeting. What about my philosophy on the technique? I prefer an inside out technique for repairs. I like to try to do vertical mattress sutures. I use two or Tycron, it's a non-absorbable suture. And I try to avoid the braided sutures. They're very thin and I think they can cut through the meniscus. 
Occasionally, I will do some all inside because of access, but remember, these are very expensive and they're not as versatile, at least in my hands. I like to use fiber and clock for the isolated meniscal tears that aren't with ACL uh, injuries. Uh, this is an example of the clock that I use. My post-op rehab is initially slow, four to six weeks on crutches. The key two things you need to know is weight-bearing needs to be protected, and you should not flex past 90 degrees for that first six weeks. And finally, four to six months before returning to sport. I will finish with some quick case examples and then talk about the rehab uh, uh, principles. So I'll show an isolated lateral radial split tear that Kiera showed, a bucket handle lateral meniscus tear, ACL tear with a displaced medial meniscus tear, a, an acute medial meniscus root tear in an active 54-year-old tennis player, and a young athlete that had root tears medial, lateral, and a radial split tear. And I think here's the message again, every tear and patient is different, but post-op rehab is similar. Protective repair until full healing and rehab is complete. Here's a radial split tear in a 15-year-old athlete. You saw this Kiera. This is my preferred technique, very similar to hers. I'll put three sutures, there's one underneath as well. I'll then push the fiber and clot in and tie my sutures over that. That's a nice thing about inside-out techniques. You can tie the sutures down after you pass the clot. A 19-year-old female, displaced lateral meniscus tear, poor motion. I get her reduced in clinic. She goes to the OR. I'm able to get seven sutures. Lateral repairs are easier than medial. You can usually get four to six to seven sutures, vertical matches on a lateral meniscus repair. And then I like to use fiber and clot and tie after I pass the clot. 20-year-old college wrestler. This is a very big athlete. Twisting injury, he has an ACL, grade three, displaced meniscal tear, poor motion. So I elected to perform a staged uh, meniscal repair with fiber and clot, and he'll come back for his ACL reconstruction. And finally, 54-year-old uh, active tennis player, medial pop. He has a medial meniscus root tear, as shown there, a devastating injury. It's acute. This is my technique. I'm not going to go into detail. There's the root tear. I use a transosseous technique with the instrument shown there. Remember the fixation strength of this suture, and we've been done several of these, actually Sebastian Cox did one of the, uh, uh, and Pittsburgh did this with me, pull-out strengths of between 140, 120 to 140 newtons. I usually put two sutures in. And this is the final fixation. You've seen it being pulled down. It looks great, but you know what? That's not real strong. It's about 140. 40 to 180 newtons in strength, so you got to wait for biological healing. Finally, here's an young athlete that has a medial tear, lateral root tear, and a radial split tear. I'm going to do all three of those in ACL reconstruction, and here's the technique in, in the single slide. You've got to repair this. You have to uh, protect this. I'll finish with the ACL rehab protocol. Uh, so there's my patient post-op right there. Very simple, very simple to do. Very simple to tell the parents and the, and the athlete. They stay straight for a week. They come to my office. They look like this. Uh, they're wearing touchdown weight bearing. Uh, you are safe in full extension. This is safe on any repair. So you, you're protecting them. So for two to six weeks, they do that, but they do open up and they're in a supine position and go zero to 90 with heel size until about six weeks out. At six to 12 weeks, I'll unlock the brace shown here on the right. They'll go zero to 90 degrees until they're about eight weeks. What I'll let them do is they'll bear weight with the brace locked in extension. And again, your repair is on very uh, much less uh, force 
and stress when they're in full extension. I want to throw this out, Jack, and uh, Peter, maybe we could talk a little bit about BFR. I think this is a great possibility and you're active athletes, you want to get back a little quicker, you could start BFR at this point, protect the meniscal repair and, and enhance uh, the recovery of their strength and agility. At three to four months, progressive activity, strength, agility, sport-specific activities, in four to six months for full activities and return to play for isolated tears. For me, repairs with ACL reconstructions are usually eight to nine months before they return to sport. In conclusion, the key is to understand the timing of the biology of healing, fixation, fixation strength of your repair. Some of your repairs, you're gonna get very marginal fixation strength. You really need to know that and protect them even more. The compliance of the patient, understand that. And also don't forget about your physio. Some of the physios don't really appreciate a meniscal repair and they'll be taking them off on a regular protocol based on how they feel. So also talk to your physios. Beware of non-compliant patients. Be very clear on post-operative rehab and return to play before, during, and after surgery. The bottom line, six weeks to heal, 12 weeks to return to baseline, and three to six months for full recovery. This picture here, failed repair, loss of meniscal function, may not manifest itself for one to two years, then it is a huge problem. Thank you, I don't know why it's such a quiet society of Save the Meniscus, we should be vocal and out there. So thank you very much, it's been an honor to uh, participate on this, uh, on this uh, webinar, thank you. Am I off now? Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much, Chris. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we have probably time for at least uh, five questions. We have uh, thousands of questions on the uh, Q&A. Uh, Peter, I'll let you start with the first one. Thank you, Jacques. Uh, th there's been a number of questions, but th there's been a couple that have been uh, repeated. Uh, the first uh, one that I saw repeated a bit was, which technique to use? We have all inside, we have inside out, and we have outside in techniques. And rather than ask for the panels on that, but broadly speaking, the, the all inside technique should really be used more for the, those in the really the back corner of the knee, and in the, you might say in the posterior quarter or third. The uh, inside out technique, as you can see from the presentation, is the workhorse for meniscus repairs. And really that should be used for most uh, repairs, particularly in the middle third, and extending a little bit of the posterior and a little bit anteriorly. Those tears that are in the in the anterior third, which is quite uncommon, then the all inside the, the outside in technique is the best for that. Um, uh, there were a few questions on pie crusting, uh, how, how to open up the medial compartment of the knee. Um, and Kira, would you like to respond to that as to how to do the pie crusting to open up the medial side of the knee? Yeah, sure. Um, so in the video that I showed in my talk, you can see that I'm just simply using a green needle. I have the knee um, positioned um, as I would to open the medial compartment. So I have the side support quite low. So I'm able to crank valgus. So I'm applying a valgus force to the knee in slight flexion. So as you apply the valgus force and you penetrate the MCL and you actually need to get posterior to the posterior oblique ligament and multiple perforations. Now, there's different techniques described. Um, some people um, penetrated in the, in the superficial on, off the femur, and some people do it off the tibia, and some people do it under the joint. Um, 
it, it has the same degree of effect. I don't recommend releasing the distal MCL off the tibia because I think that can um, lead to long-term issues with laxity. But if you do the technique that I showed in the video in my talk, where you um, put the green needle into the joint so you can see the, the needle coming into the joint and it's really about two thirds of the way back and then penetrate and perforate the PCL. Um, and you'll watch the femoral condyle lift up and open up the medial compartment and they don't need braced and that will, um, they don't have any issues with um, residual laxity. Thanks, Kira. There were a couple of questions from the ramp tears, but uh, Roman, is there, are there indications, are there some ramp tears that you would not repair? Yeah, as I mentioned in my um, in my lecture, so the very small ones, which are maybe inferior to one centimeter and which are stable, I think that's the main factor. If, if I, I should nicely how unstable they can be. Uh, so if you have a small stable ramp lesion, I think that's that's the, the one you can leave alone. Yeah. Roman, do you do you rasp it at least like get back and put a rasp in there just to create some bleeding on the small yeah, ones? Yeah, good su good suggestion. But you, yeah, uh, so what what you need to to make sure is that the lesion is not bigger than uh, you think it is. Uh, sometimes you have an, uh, the synovial layer uh, which overlies it and then which uh, makes you really underestimate the size of the, the lesion. Uh, so uh, get in with the needle, palpate it really nicely, and then you can nicely feel if the ram tissue is still there um, because uh, well you, you push uh, the needle through the ram tissue and then you're on the con on you can't get the contact on the tibial plateau and that's really a feeling you can easily get and that makes you really estimate uh, the size of the lesion and if in doubt do a post to a middle portal. Roman, there is another there question can we see the the ramp lesion from the uh, anterior medial portal and if yes how and the technique you showed, is it the only technique you can use to fix ramp lesion? Uh, so last question first, in my hands, yes. Um, uh, because I always fix them directly, but um, there may be some, uh, some lesions you may be able to fix from anterior. But if you do that, you need to go behind and look from behind. I've tried it a couple of times to fix it, maybe with an, um, uh, an anchor from anterior. I went behind and then I was pretty disappointed because the, the, the needle, the tip of the needle did not uh, stick into the, um, into the ramp tissue. So that's something you need to verify. So try it and, and but verify after. Which was the other, were the other questions, Jacques? There was a question if you can uh, evaluate the ramp lesion from the anterior medial portal and if yes, how? Absolutely not. Not in my experience. That means you always do a posterior medial approach and pull uh, well, to evaluate. I go as I as I showed. I go first with uh, so with the intercondylar uh, approach to the posterior part of the meniscus. You are able to do this. I would say ninety eight percent of your cases. Sometimes it's really totally impossible because the knee is too narrow. And then uh, you look into the posterior medial corner and you enter your needle. And, and, and that's how you can evaluate it first. Uh, at least that's how I do it. And um, usually, or very often, you see the lesion already through this intercondylar view. And then again, if you're in doubt, take your Wissinger stick and make a posteromedial portal and have a direct look at the ramp. There were some questions on the uh, uh, root tears for Roland. 
in particular on the lateral side, if, if the meniscofemoral ligament of Risberg is still intact, would you still repair the lateral meniscal root? Yeah, I mean, this is what I mentioned. No, this is a stabilizer for sure, and it gives some, uh, some kind of stability for the lateral meniscus. But still, you know, when you are going in, I mean, you have some kind of meniscus where the insertion of the lateral, uh, the posterior horn is quite small. Uh, but in general, I, I fix it, yes. Yeah, I would too. Yeah, yes. Because of the importance, which I mentioned, you know, of the of the lateral meniscus in terms of uh, pressure distribution, so you have to refix it, and uh, and when you do the AC reconstruction, actually, it's not as difficult because it is the exposure there, and uh, yeah. and it, it of course it takes a bit more time, uh, and therefore you should actually diagnose these patients properly because that's what you have to tell your OR team as well that you take a little bit longer for your surgery because you have to do the uh, transosseous fixation of your posterior of the meniscus, yes. You know, the, the, the danger is you, you see the MFL is almost always intact, so you think the lateral meniscus is functioning, but the bony insertion's off. Or even, even perhaps what I see a lot of times that you'll have a tear proximal to that bony insertion, which is a little bit more challenging. But the MFL does not provide, restore the hoop stresses to the meniscus. I think that's really important to know. Yeah. For, the, for the audience, the MFL is the mediofemoral ligament, meniscofemoral ligament, sorry. Chris, last question. If you have a longitudinal tear, or if you have a tear that really touch the hoop stress effect, does it, does it change your rehabilitation uh, program? So, so if it's a longitudinal, not a radial split. Yeah. No, not really, because I, the problem is when you start to change it, uh, the patients just take off and they'll just, you give them an inch and they go a mile. I think the really critical time is that first six weeks, you just got to harp on them. That's why I leave, I, I like a brace because that keeps them in full extension. It's very hard to disrupt the meniscus repair in full extension. So you're protecting that way. And then I actually, as I showed, the, I unlocked a brace for motion, but just to 90 degrees until about eight weeks. But I always have to remind them. So, Jack, if I if I start to split hairs on it, then I think I can get in trouble. One of the things I question I had because you guys take care of a lot of high elite athletes, have you used blood flow restriction? Because to me, this may be a role for that. The meniscus takes three months, but usually it takes that three to four to five months extra to get them rehab. But if you use BFR in a hockey player or in a soccer player who's got isolated meniscal tear, you can get their muscle where you need. You've, you've rehab, you've, you've got it to heal. Now you can get them back sooner to play. So I'd like to know, Jack and all of Roland, all your experience with, with that, do you do it? Well, on, on my side, we're using it systematically for more than a year now uh, with a, a so-called short protocol uh, that we do on a daily basis. And uh, I just get a little problem. So I'm applying PFR on myself and I may have to say that I'm impressed by uh, the way it works. Uh, I think it's a, it's a very interesting uh, approach. Yeah, I, I think this would be a potentially great uh, webinar uh, to have uh, because I think there's a role, but there's just no science. It's, it's really a, kind of all over, but it would be really an interesting question because you can understand the, 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 what's attractive about it while you're letting that meniscus heal, which is on its own time clock. You're de- conditioning the athlete, but if you can keep that muscle strong while the meniscus is healing, then it can get back quicker. So that's the true advantage. I hope everybody understands that potential advantage, but the science isn't there, I don't think. 
I agree, I agree. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, I will now, this is time for uh, the uh, uh, take home message. And uh, to wrap up this uh, webinar, first of everything, I would like to thank very much our four faculties for outstanding presentation. That was really excellent. I thank you very much, Isokos, for the close and fruitful collaboration to put together this uh, webinar. I think that was really extremely interesting. Uh, to wrap up everything, if you look at acute traumatic bucket and tear or radial tears, always try to repair, especially in the youngest. You can uh, tell the patient that you will have good to excellent results, even though you have to face uh, sometimes a high failure rate, and this failure rate is increased in uh, male, in lower patient, and obviously in more active patient. This is something important. Full fitness radial tear, and Chiara has really emphasized it and clearly made the point this is a very important and devastating injury. Try to fix it always as much as you can and rehab very slowly. With respect to the ramp lesion, I think Roman has been clear. This is something that you should look at routinely during your uh, investigation, your arthroscopic investigation. Beware of it if it's after an high energy trauma mechanism or in the pivoting activity. This is very often associated with a high degrees of uh, uh, laxity, especially when you do the pivot shit. The prevalence is about 20%. Repair, if it's unstable, it may be technically uh, demanding. On the lateral uh, root tears, once again, you may find that in 10% of the patient, maybe more if you have a selected uh, population of patients, especially in, in, in high-level athletes, you should repair it through a transosseous uh, fixation, and you do the reconstruction of the ACL in the same time. The correct insertion sign is crucial to restore a proper meniscus function. Finally, Chris Honor has clearly made the point, when we talk about meniscus, we should go slow, we should respect the different phases of healing, we should respect also the restoration of a certain biomechanics around the knee, and I think this is extremely important. In young patients, you always have some pressure from the patients or the parents because they feel good and they want to go back soon and you have to really to temper them. Remember that this is very important. If you have repaired it, you have to give all, I'll say the chances to this meniscus to heal properly. And obviously I uh, made point first, but try always to save the meniscus. I would say this is the modern approach to uh, this type of uh, uh, lesion. Once again, uh, the webinar recording will be shortly available on the SK Academy. Please, uh, if you want to look at this uh, webinar again, uh, go on the Academy. Our next uh, webinar will be on December the 9th and will be uh, dedicated to a first time shoulder dislocation uh, moderated by uh, Lado Kovacic and Frank, Frank uh, Markert-Schläger. Uh, Peter? Yes, uh, thanks, Jack. The uh, next uh, ISACOS webinar is, is here. It's uh, going to be next year, um, discussing the rehabilitation before and after hip arthroscopy. For more details, keep your eye on the ISACOS website. Thank you. And please fill the survey after this webinar. You will, you will uh, receive a link. Your feedback is very important to us. This is something important to improve this thing. Stay in touch on the uh, social uh, network. 
Thank you very much all for attending. Thank you to the faculties. Thank you to Isakos. See you very soon. Bye-bye. Ciao, guys. Ciao. Thank you. Great job. Excellent job. Thank you.